I think the most important thing we can do is help people understand themselves and then be themselves. Sometimes you may have people who are acting out as a vocal leader when they're not modeling the behaviors. And we don't want that either. So it's not just about being vocal. I think a lot of the times, and this is coaches, this is players, just because someone's loud, just because someone's saying words, doesn't mean that they're trustworthy, doesn't mean they're dependable, doesn't mean that their actions are backing the words they're saying. Monty Williams had a great thing that came with the sons. Well done is better than well said. I think people say the words, not understanding that it's not about the words. You have to do the things that you're saying. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the G League's Greenboro Swarm assistant coach, Ben Resner. Coach Resner is here today to discuss lineup considerations and rotation patterns, meaningful on-court minutes for developing players, and we talk unique DHO actions, and locker room leaders during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Costa Rica, Spain, Italy, Australia, South Africa. We're excited to announce our newest partnership with the world leader in international sport tours, Beyond Sports. Founder and former college and pro basketball coach, Josh Erickson, and his team of former athletes have built the go-to company for coaches looking to take their programs abroad. From the travel and accommodations to excursions and service learning opportunities, Beyond Sports does it all. For more information and to learn why more than 650 universities have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com and tell them Slapping Glass sent you. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Ben Resner. Coach, we want to start with this and talking about lineups, rotations, decisions that coaches have to make once the game starts. We've had some fun conversations before about lineups and how you put together all that stuff. And we wanted to actually go a little bit deeper with you. And I know it's something that you have to think about all the time at the G League level too, you got to think about because guys are coming and going sometimes, new players having to fit in and just how you basically put that together. And we'll start with this of just the things that you and the staff would think about when it came to lineups and rotations and substitution patterns once the game starts. So whatever plan you had, but then once the ball's tipped and you start getting into that game, what you guys thought about from that standpoint? From our perspective, I think there are four things that come to mind with me. It's really defensive versatility. How are we going to get stops? Spacing. We have enough shooting on the floor. It's playmaking. We have guys who can get to the paint, you know, shrink the defense in and then make plays for others. And then the other one would be rebounding. Obviously, you got to finish possession with a rebound. So do we have enough of those four things with the guys on the floor at all times, really? That's what we're trying to think of. And I think, you know, specifically once the ball goes up, I guess it's talking about what are they doing defensively? You know, if they have, say, a big and a drop and we've played our traditional five, maybe we want to put in a shooting five to, you know, attack their the way their coverage. So I think those are the things that come to mind first, at least in terms of the baseline on how we're building lineups. I want to circle back to those four in just a second. I know Pat might want to as well. But before we get more into those four with you, pre-game, how you and the staff would think about minute distribution and trying to get the key guys that you need on the floor to keep that balance. 
that you just talked about. What's a unique challenge of the G League is that we have guys who may have mandatory minutes. So I think that's a big challenge. We may have a guy who's set, he's got to play 25 minutes. So depending on, I guess we'll say how reliable they are or how much we anticipate them playing down the stretch, maybe there's a time where if guy has to play, the reality is in the G League, we have to get their minutes checked no matter what. So for a guy who we're not worried about, we know this guy we trust down the stretch, then I'm not worried about necessarily getting his minutes out of the way. But in the G League, it's absolutely a thing where if we have a guy where we're not sure we can trust him down the stretch or we have a guy that we'd rather play, that is a factor. And we'd play him maybe eight minutes in the first quarter just to get a good chunk. And then we can, down the stretch, we have the optionality to go away from somebody who we may not trust or want the game down the stretch. And obviously the challenge there is that those guys are often coming from the Hornets. You know, that's a, a responsibility to hand out minutes to guys who may not have earned them is a unique challenge to the G League where winning is not necessarily the priority. You know, the priority is making sure guys play. That's a unique challenge before the game where we have to keep that in mind at all times on that note with anyone's best player and maybe your best player is like a playmaker so with these heavy minute guys how much of your conversation when it comes to rotations is maintaining this balance it's always a balancing act i think when you're trying to get accomplish those four things if our best player is a playmaker then we have that box checked for most of the game. So I'm looking to fill it with other areas. Maybe we need a guy who's going to be dependable defensively. We need a guy who's going to run to the corners. We need a guy who's going to get great blockouts. So we're talking about a versatile wing or a guy who's going to really defend around that playmaker. We need a guy who's going to be able to shoot, right? If the playmaker's getting to the paint, he's creating for other guys that we have enough shooting on the floor. Once that guy, if we're going to take that guy out of the game, where are we getting our playmaker from? Who are we playing through? You know, is it a big who can pass? And now we're going to play through the elbows a little more than playing traditional pick and roll. So if that best player of ours is a playmaker, when he comes out, I got to think, where am I getting that area still? How am I going to check that box that we need to play well to play a balanced lineup? Where am I going to get that from when he comes out? And that goes for any of those four things that I mentioned. If our best player is a traditional big and we want to go small, are we going to have enough rebounding on the court? Do I need to put in another wing instead of one of our smaller guards so we have enough rebounding when we go small. You mentioned it's really just kind of a balancing act. I feel like you're kind of toggling with the scales at all times. You know, if I'm getting, you know, you think about Jokic, I guess, as an example, they're getting so much playmaking and rebounding from him. When he goes out, they need to find. So now that, you know, you move that, you sl that slider, I guess we'll call it, you move those things down. Where are you going to be able to increase it back up? You know, where are we going to get the playmaking? Where are we going to get the rebounding when he goes out? Pat and I were talking a little bit beforehand about meaningful minutes for players. And let's say you're developing guys or your eighth, ninth man that you want to play, you know, 10 to 12 or 10 to 15 minutes and how you would think about whether or not they fit into those four perfectly, but still get them minutes where they can develop. They feel confident. In a way that, you know, like we were talking about, Pat and I were saying, like, if you give them two minutes at a time here, they never really get in the flow of the game and then they're frustrated. And how you think about trying to get lower minute guys, minutes that matter for their development. Yeah, it's definitely a factor. I mean, we try very hard to not, one, yank guys and really give them a chance to settle into the game. And that works both ways. If a guy is playing well, he just made two shots, you know, we'll try to give him another minute to, you know, make another shot or whatever, even if we have to get him out. But yeah, like the lesser minutes, guys, you have to give them an opportunity to settle into the game. You know, you can't just pull them. So you do have to plan ahead a little bit about which lineup I'm going to next. Where are we going next? If I know we're taking out our best playmaker, is this guy going to fit in with that lineup or do I need to get him in early 
So then with the next group, when the playmaker comes out, I can put somebody else into that box. You got to be thinking, I think I'll say even like usually to the end of the quarter is really how far I'm thinking ahead. Where are we going? And personally, I'll say for me, it's the reason that I have a hard time planning the lineups out ahead of time. I think it can be useful to get to your first couple subs. But once the game gets flowing, I think it's hard to predict what's going to happen. If something they're doing defensively, maybe they're pressing and we need another guard on the floor, then I'm going to have to deviate from the plan, which is fine, even if we're planning ahead. But you just don't know. And you still have to, even if you deviate from the plan, I still have to be thinking six minutes ahead. If we have to go back to somebody, then is this guy going to fit in? Did we give the eighth guy enough of a chance before pulling him? They're all good questions, but I think that's why it's really about game flow. Just trying to, as much as you can, have all those things on the floor. How transparent are you with the players in terms of these four things with your lineups? And I guess then the conversation of like role clarification or like defining you're a playmaker for us, your defensive ability. I think that's as important as anything with the team. I think those conversations should happen before the season and really as the season goes on. And I think, again, the challenging part about the G is that those roles are changing all the time. So you have to build a team that's really adaptable because one night you could have a guy say a combo guard who's playing 15 minutes off the bench and we have a two-way on assignment who's going to shoot the ball 25 times and play 25 minutes no matter what. But then the guy from the NBA team goes back and now we need the backup combo guard to step in the next night after being a lesser usage guy. We need him to step in and be a shot creator for us. I think those conversations, especially in the G League, have to happen on a night-to-night basis. And I think it's another thing where building balanced lineups almost provides clarity for everybody in that everyone knows their role because everyone's able to be themselves. If you have a bunch of, say, versatile wings, right, who aren't really handlers, aren't really shot creators, say you have four of them in a big, well, someone's got to dribble. Someone's got to create a shot. So now everyone's going to be outside their comfort zone a little bit. Right. And it works the same way. If we have everybody who wants to shoot and who's going to defend, you know, who's going to get great blockouts, who can we trust to run to the corner? Who's going to run the wings and transition? Like those conversations are imperative. And I think if you build balanced lineups, the clarity almost builds itself in. And I think a minute's perspective, when do we communicate that? I think I've had mixed results with that to this point. I would say sometimes you tell a guy, okay, you're going to go right back in. And then the game changes like this. And now he has an expectation that he's going back in when maybe you end up going away from him. The other side of that is if you build a rotation before the game, I think as much as possible, you want the players to understand when they're going to go in. I think most players feel like they'd want to have an idea of when they're going in, when they're coming out. But also guys who play bigger minutes, if you have the conversations early, you can build the buy-in before the problem happens if you have the conversations before the game happens. So if I bring a guy in and say, hey, we're going to get you early in this game for X reason, right? We want to bring you back with the second unit so we can play through you in the second unit. Then that conversation is worth having. So when I take him out at eight minutes, he's not coming off screaming, what the hell is going on? You know, so building in the buy-in before the problem comes up, I think is really important in general. And I think that's especially with lineups and managing subs because nobody wants to come out the game and everybody wants to play. So having an idea as much as possible is huge and communication is everything. Does it make hard to balance lineups when you just have specialists? Is a specialist more or less valuable if you're trying to look at it from a lineup balance? In my opinion, it's more important. I had a conversation with a guy at the end of this year about all these things, his role, how he fit into lineups, what we needed specifically from him while he was out there. You know, I talked about these positional boxes that I kind of see, not just 
point guards shooting guards small forward, but I guess more modern ways of looking at the game. And he kind of asked, well, I think you're putting me in a box. And my response to that was, it's not a box as much as it is a framework that I see consistently throughout the modern NBA game. So the best way I think we all can be successful is excelling in the box that you're given while growing in areas that that box allows. I guess as an example, you're never going to turn Aaron Gordon into Chris Paul. Aaron Gordon can work on reads as much as he wants. In my opinion, he can play pick and rolls. He can play live against video guys. He will not have the patience. He won't have the vision. He won't have the accuracy of a Chris Paul passer. And that's fine. And I think the evaluation is the biggest thing. Being able to evaluate how a player can develop and what skills he will able to grow into, what skills does he have. I think if you evaluate incorrectly, then you're almost creating an unfair expectation. Because now if I give Aaron Gordon the ball and expect him to play 50 pick and rolls a night, he's probably not going to have the success that Chris Paul has. So I'm almost doing a disservice to him by expecting something else, right? It's, so I think it's on the coach to, it's hugely important. I think one of the most undervalued aspects of coaching is knowing what your players do well and knowing what they could do well if you allow them to step outside of the things they already do well. I think player development to me is as much about maximizing the things you do well and minimizing the things you don't as much as expanding your game. And I'll say it doesn't mean you can't expand your game, right? If I'm talking about, you know, a three and D wing per se, there's a million things we work on with a wing who has the physical tools, but it's not going to be handling big roles. It's going to be closeout attacks. It's going to be athletic finishes around the rim. It's going to be connective passes. The point I'm saying is each guy to me has a framework and a pattern of skills we all see in the NBA game. So with every player, I think when I'm talking about the lineup balance, it's where does this guy fit in? And I think that clarity can really help them ultimately more than put them in a box. Love to make a little left turn in all of this for a second and talk about rest for your best players to make sure that they're ready down the stretch. And I guess maybe like throughout the whole game, but specifically second half when, you know, we know no one wants to come out of the game, but they, they obviously need to and you need to keep your best players legs fresh and your best lineups fresh for the last four minutes and when you're thinking about when and how to get them rest that makes sense how do you think about that is it in timeouts is it end of quarters is it a matchup thing where when a best player goes out on the other team you're going to take your best out so you don't get killed lineup wise like what is it to help with the rest the first thing that i'm looking at is just the individual Maybe one guy's comfortable playing 10 minutes straight. So we can sit him late in the third and early in the fourth and then bring him back at 10. Whereas another guy maybe can't play six minutes straight. So he comes in to start the fourth, but we got to get him out before another way is the media. People like to use the media. We get him out before the media. It gets an extra 40 seconds. Then he's got the media timeout. Now we bring him in after the media. So I think every individual is different. And I think communicating with them and studying them, I'll say it's something that I want to get better at personally is understanding really when guys are tired and when they really need rest because it's everything. You know, obviously performance drops so much when you're fatigued. So I personally am not looking as much about the other team, I think, but I do want to make sure when that guy comes out, like we've been talking about, that we have a lineup that can cover up whatever we're taking away with him off the floor. So it's a conversation first. It's observing how they're playing, whether it's in training camp or as the games go on, I think we should always be learning about each other, you know, and then we can kind of craft a plan for each individual. But ideally, the start of the fourth, I think for your best players, I think I'd like to have everybody back in by five minutes, unless they had, you know, if they have a five fouls, then maybe we'll bring them back at four. For the most part, the five minute mark, I think I'd like to have everyone back in. Another left turn for me a little bit. 
something I guess just myself I've thought a lot about as a coach is in practice, how you get these mixed combinations of groups that are going to play together in a game to get meaningful reps in practice because your average practice, maybe your first five versus your second five, I know you try to mix them up a little bit, but you're going to have these combinations on the floor where these guys need to get reps together in practice too, so that when they get to the game, it's not the first time they've ever played together, even if it makes sense on paper. How do you think about in practice these combinations and getting you know meaningful time together in reps? To be honest, it's tough. I mean, even the Julie, we are not practicing very much. What we have is a lot of like shooting days in between games. So I think there is value still in putting those groups together, whether we're doing three-man shooting where we're working on actions that we have in our offense and then those guys are playing together. And then we're still discussing, this is what this guy likes to do well and here's how you guys can maximize and help each other. So we're having those discussions in practice. I think even if it's not full speed, you watch it on tape. I think ideally in a perfect world, they're playing together. But in the G and the NBA, I think practice time is so limited. Live play is so limited after training camp. They have to find other ways to do it. So I think it's the teaching during not live segments of practice or not days that aren't live. You could still teach and still walk through things. And then I think it's film, seeing things that worked and didn't work or what guys could do when those situations come up. And then you learn from playing, like you're saying, but it's going to be in games, I think, for the most part with us. My quick follow-up then is just on the sort of mixing of guys and lineups and getting reps, personalities and alphas and having the right kind of lineups when it comes to just who wants the ball, who demands the ball. And I know like in the G League, you got a lot of people coming in and out, but just how you think about the dominant personalities within groups and lineups and how that plays into who plays together too. It's huge. Like I said before, I think if you build a balanced roster and build balanced lineups, the role allocation almost takes care of itself because guys, the conversation that you have with them that builds the role clarity between the coach and the player, they know what they do. So when they check into the game and we put a balanced lineup on the floor, there is no redundancy. You know, you may have the alpha personality, but he knows who he is already from the conversation based on who's around him. Everything comes back to communication for me. You know, those conversations have to take place. And again, in the G, that's why it's so challenging because it changes night to night. You know, it changes our best player could change night to night. Who's playing down the stretch could change night to night. A guy has an expectation that he's going to play 35 minutes. And then the next night he's playing 10 and he's playing off the ball. He played 50 pick and rolls last night. The assignments show up. Now he's playing 12 minutes and he's got to run to the corner. So it's our job as coaches, I think, to have that line of communication, to communicate honestly with them and open about and be very specific about what their role is on a night-to-night basis. And I think when you hear people talk about why the G League is so challenging, why it's so beneficial, is because you have to be so adaptable and you have to have those conversations. Otherwise, things go haywire. That's what you hear about the G all the time is everybody wants to shoot all the balls. (laughs) So like, (laughs) that's what it is. You know, everyone understands that. So how do you fight that? It's with lineup balance, balanced roster, and then communication and clear communication of roles on a night-to-night basis. It's a never-ending process, I think, especially in the G League. You never have the same lineup twice. Coach, I'd like to follow up about redundancy and whether maybe it's injury, maybe it's fouls, or if you're at high school, you know, you, you can't always pick your team. So when you have lineups that, if we get general with it, let's say the redundancy is, it's a defensive lineup or it's nothing but playmakers, no real defensive versatility. How is a coach maybe you think then tactically in terms of 
okay, this is a defensive lineup. So I got to try to tailor how we play and pace or slow up, you know, versus, okay, this is an offensive lineup. So what do I got to think about? So you can win these units or not just get destroyed because the scales are so unbalanced. That's an awesome question. I think you said it. You have to be able to tailor your style of play depending on who's playing, right? If we're really going to maximize the strengths of the players and maximize the team, then we have to be adaptable as a group. Spo, to me, always has done an unbelievable job. Their culture is regardless of who plays, right? They play to a certain standard. They always defend, but like offensively, maybe they're playing a different way depending on who's on the floor. If you mentioned a defensive lineup, if we can't score on the half court, then we better force turnovers and get out and run. So it definitely has to be crafted to who is on the court and what you have. From a playmaking perspective, if we have all playmaking and we don't have anybody I think you got to open the floor as much as possible. You know, if we don't have any shooting or we're small, I think then we, we got to be more scrappy. You know, maybe we're, again, you got to get out and run and transition. If we're a great passing team, we got to play in space. We got to get out and transition and we got to find a way to get stops. If, you know, generally playmaking means smalls. So how are we going to get stops? Maybe we got to double the post, you know, maybe we got to whatever switch pick and rolls and then run and jump so we can then get out and run. I definitely think you always have to be tailoring to the strengths you have on the team. And that's why I'll go back even a step further. Like I already mentioned, you have to know what the strengths are. You know, you have to know who your players are. We really need to study the players and what they do well. That's where everything starts. You know, you could have a system, but it doesn't mean it's beneficial to everybody who's in it unless you're recruiting and you recruit everyone to in it. But like, that's not often the case necessarily, especially in high school or even in the gym. We've had this conversation recently outside of, you know, the film or knowing who they are before they come into the gym. But when you get them in the gym, what are some of the best ways a coach can learn from their players? And like you said, study them and start figuring out like what they can and can't do. Obviously watching them, but I think it's, I don't want to be generic, but it's just like all the time, whether it's a two on O pick and roll drill. If I'm watching a guy, did he cleanly come off the pick and roll? Did he throw an accurate pocket pass versus the guy who comes off? He doesn't have a great setup. He turns the corner. He goes really wide. He doesn't get downhill. And then he throws a lob to the rim. That's nowhere near the roller. Like, okay, that guy probably even in two on O, that guy's probably not the guy that I'm going to trust to handle in pick and rolls. You know, I watch a guy shoot in a drill and he goes two for 10. That's probably, and again, it's much more nuanced than that, but it's everything. It's everything they do. It's live play. It's drill work. It's, I think you're talking about alphas. I think your best player often has to have an alpha mentality, you know, that they want the ball. Like, does the guy have that in stretching? Are guys looking to him? All the things. You know, we can go down the list. Whatever you're doing in practice, I think you have to be evaluating their skills. It's even the warm up. It's not just film, it's the warm up, it's the drills, it's the live play, it's everything because that's the game happening in front of you. Circling back to something you mentioned earlier in our conversation, and it was that you said you had some mixed results when talking to players about playing time before the game and then something happens and and maybe it doesn't work out. And I guess wondering your learning from why the results were mixed when you're trying to communicate with players about playing time, what you, I guess, have learned from maybe the more difficult conversations. I think a huge coaching is trust. You know, it's our job to build trust with the player. So I try as far as I can to, if I were to set an expectation that I need to follow through with my word. So what I don't like doing is saying, this is what I have for you. You're going in at 10. Something changes. You're not going in at 10 anymore. Next time I come to you to let you know you're going in at 10, you're like, you're not really going in at 10. You don't trust me anymore. So as much as possible, I want to make sure that I can follow through with my word because that is everything. It's about being dependable and the players need to trust the coach is going to do what he says and his words aren't empty. 
we've all seen some coaches where like you say something, whether it's, I'm going to make you run if we don't get 30 layups in a minute, and then they get 29 and you don't run. Words have to matter. So I think down to a little thing, like even if it's not a big deal, I'm putting you in at six and then I don't follow through. That is chipping away at the trust that they have when I speak. And they need to know that when I speak, that I'm speaking for a reason. There's a purpose behind the words. I'm intentional with the words that I say. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto-tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, really well said. Thanks for going through all that stuff. I know we can keep going down a bunch of other rabbit holes with this, but we want to move now to a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. So for those maybe listening for the first time, we'll give you three options, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, which makes sense. We were just talking about lineups and rotations. And then we'll discuss from there. So coach, if you're ready for this, we'll dive into this first question. All right, let's do it. This first one has to do with unique dribble handoff actions. And so we're going to give you three different DHO actions that your start here would be like the most unique in the sense of it's the hardest to guard for the defense if you see it. So start, sub, or sit. First option is a gut DHO, someone coming from up the middle in that middle of the floor DHO. The second option is sometimes referred to as a hook or flip DHO. And I'm thinking of Draymond Green and Steph Curry kind of runs by and he hooks it and gives it to him on the other side. Mike D'Antoni is going to be pissed that you said that that was Draymond Green. That I think the Rockets had that first, but we'll have to deal with Coach D'Antoni, I guess, after. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we'll... I think they did it for Harden, I think. Did they? Okay. Rough, but I'm pretty sure it was a Harden thing first. Yeah. All right. Our history department's lacking here yeah, at Slapping yeah, Glass. Yeah, so, yeah, you yeah. know, we'll have to. Sorry, you guys got a lot of other areas. Sorry, you got a lot of things <laughs> so, going on. So that hook flip DHO popularized yeah. by uh, Mike D'Antoni. <laughs> and then uh, the third option is a corner step up DHO. So basically someone coming from either the dunker spot of the corner that's quickly stepping up into a DHO with someone coming from the slot or from the wing. Like Miami does a great job of it a lot with Duncan Robinson. So start, sub, or sit those unique DHOs, the hardest one being the hardest to guard. Like you just mentioned about Miami, I'm going to start the uphill from the corner. I think because you're coming from below, the guy who you're dribbling uphill at is already behind. You cannot, it's impossible to go under that if you have a good dribble handoff angle. So there's already advantage created because you're coming from below the where you're handing it off to. So now it's an automatic two for one because I got the guy on my back once I'm rolling into the paint. I think two, I'll go with Mike D'Antoni's flip. <laughs> it's just hard to see coming. You don't anticipate. He's often coming from the backside of where the defender of the handler is. So I think you can't see it. They're thinking you're cutting through and he just quick turns. I think for me, I'm deviating away from DHOs, but any type of angle changes with screens are generally really tough to guard, in my opinion. So I think that flip is an angle change, and you're almost always going to be trailing with that because the guy defending the screener is going to be behind, and now you got to have the guy who got screened 
is trailing no matter what. And now, you know, with the best handlers, again, if you have the two on one, you know, you're going to be in a tough spot and then I'll sit the gut DHL. Love all the answers there. I actually wanted to start with your sub. You just mentioned something super interesting about you love changing angles, whether it's a DHO, whether it's a pick and roll, whether it's a pin, whatever it is. And I guess how you think about teaching those things to the guys, whatever action that they're in and, and kind of flipping and switching angles. Good question. I think it depends kind of on the situation like that flip that what we're talking about here with the flip DHO, there's a specific thing we're trying to get to. So that's a specific teaching point about the play that we're trying to execute. Whereas if I'm saying in the middle of the floor, we have a pick and roll and I want you to run up and change the angle at the last second, we may teach it with maybe a hip tap, you know, and then, you know, he's going the other way. He may run up and we may say rub is always going to be the play where he changes the angle. But I think what happens as much as anything is if you don't script it, as long as they know how to read it, then there'll be an advantage. It's not necessarily coming off the screen. Sometimes if you flip it late, now you get the screener's defender jumping out, take the ball, but it opens up the refusal. The angle changes. If you can get to a point where you're using it, where it's random and you're not scripting it, I think the flip, like we're talking about the DHO in that sense, it's useful because you can't see that he's about to flip it. And then like we talked about, you already trail. But if you're in the middle of the floor and you're behind, I think it's just a matter of trying to be as random as possible. Okay. Makes sense. I would like to go back to your start, which is that corner uphill DHO and We've seen a lot more of it recently, just different leagues. And it seems like a nice, a popular action where you have a five or four coming out of that corner. The one thing on it is, you know, you get the shooter kind of going towards the baseline and then it opens up a natural either pop or short roll for that. The guy giving the DHO and how you think about the backside action where there's three players away and what you want those three players away from this action, doing, cutting, spacing you know, occupying, because there could be a situation where there's, you know, three defenders kind of loaded up to the ball and how you want to play through that. Again, it does go back to, we're talking about lineup, right? We're talking about lineups again, who's on the floor on the backside. So is it in this situation that we're talking about, was it our five who was spacing in the corner, who got the ball kicked to him and then we're going uphill with him. So now the other side has three smalls who can shoot and therefore they'd be outside the three point line, which opens up the paint a little more, obviously, or is that a four or another wing. So now when he goes uphill is our five in the dunker. So maybe we just interchange with those two guys away from the dunker, you know, on the opposite side in the corner in the wing. I think it's again, lineup dependent. I do think it is important to do something, <laughs> but there's also a school of thought would say that spacing is the biggest factor there is because, and I think you mentioned the pop or the roll, there's an automatic, to me, that play, the uphill DHO is always going to be a roll because once he sets that screen, the guy who was defending the now handler is behind because of the angle of the DHO uphill. He's behind. So I would want that guy to roll every time. And now if you have somebody in the dunker, the dunker still has to step up and take the roller. You know, so now maybe it opens up the lob or and then the corner kick if the guy sinks on the legs of the five. So like as long as your spacing is good, the advantage is already created. You just have to make the right read at that point. So I think my default would be I'm not necessarily worried about us having some sort of backside action to distract everybody from looking at the roller because we have the advantage. You know, the roller is going to be open no matter what. So he's got to be able to make that four on three read the next read. Okay. I have one more quick follow up and I guess it would go to your sit and the gut DHO and just your reasoning of why that one would be the easiest to guard in of these three for you. My caveat would be I haven't really ran it myself at any teams that I've been with at a high level. So I'd want to learn more about it. Plus I like the other two. So that's definitely reason number one and two, but you know, the guy's going to be trailing no matter what, but I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I want to do more research on it. I want to be around it more. I want to 
if it gets to the point where I try to install it, I know Golden State went to it this year in one of the games after they were getting, was it the Sack series, I think, or I don't remember what series it was. I know they went to it a little bit. So like they're getting clay open with it a couple of times. Yeah. And I'd like to learn more. I think I'm not sure I'm defaulting because I like the other two and I'd like to learn more about the third. I think it's interesting. It, it is an angle that's taking them. You know, if we talk about this DHO angles and like the hook, the flip, the corner, like all the angles are attacking. And with this gut, this Swinulis, it is the angle is taking them away. And it seems like, okay, if you're a high level player, but it is a difficult, like to be running away from the ball, get the handoff square up. It's a lot where compared to you just get going to the rim. The way we're talking about it, like, so to me, I almost had Spinulis as something different. Like to me, I guess Spinulis was coming from like a rip screen angle, more of a diagonal angle into the handoff, as opposed to the gut is coming straight up from under the rim and I'm just kind of flipping it behind. Whereas it's not as much to me. This Yeah. And that's what I'm referring to more. Yeah. So, so Spinulis to me is more of a jump shooting action where I'm flipping it to try to get a jumper. And then maybe because they put two on the ball because of the gravity of the guy coming off, then we hit the roller. But to me, the gut is either, you know, if it's a handoff and not a gut screen, then he's handing it off and he's really just turning the corner because I think unless he's trailing so much, like it's a tough shot. Yeah. I mean, you're running away from the rim and then I think maybe you're getting downhill because they're trailing. But I guess in my head, I had those two as different things, Spinulis and the gut handoff. Fair enough. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I was referring to, too. Just getting what everyone labels everything. You were thinking. I was thinking the gut. Yeah, no, for sure. You were thinking the gut. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny because that's a factor in all this too, right? Is does everyone even have a shared definition for the same terms? You know, I mean, Cliff, I've never heard, I don't know if he said on the pod, but Cliff calls pop flare. So he'll say pick and flare. And I've never heard that in my entire life. And he's obviously forgotten more than I know about basketball. So like my point is that everybody has their own language, you know? So I think that the biggest thing when you're building a team and obviously Cliff did this or whatever team you're building, whoever's in charge, you have to build in a system of talk. So we have shared definitions for what we're talking about. So, you know, we're not saying the same word, but meaning two different things. All right, coach, our next one has to do with leadership traits. So we're going to give you three leadership traits that you would value the most in your player, one of your leaders in terms of managing a locker room when you're not around. So what you value the most in your leader when it comes to locker room management, the first one an empathetic listener or an empathetic ear. The second one is a standard setter. And the third one is an accountability piece, willing to hold his teammates accountable. To me, you have to start a standard setter. If this guy shows up every day and Steph comes to mind, he's not the most vocal, but he shows up. He's about the work. He's consistent. He's dependable. You know exactly what you're going to get. He's the leader of the team and he's setting the tone. This is what we're about. That is the most important thing without a doubt will sub an empathetic listener. I think it's generally rare to find. Our job as coaches is to be empathetic and listeners, but I think players often don't have enough empathy for each other. It's hard to find and it is valuable, you know, when you could be understanding and you could put yourself in someone else's shoes and then you have to communicate with each other. You know, that is part of it. It's conflict resolution. And if you're not able to listen, or if you are able to listen, in this case, why I'm, I said sub and why I think it's important is because that's how you resolve conflict. That's how you build good communication. That's how you build trust is by listening to each other, by hearing someone out, by trying to figure out why they may be right instead of why you're just assuming that they're wrong. You know, So we'll sub empathetic listener and we will sit someone willing to hold someone accountable because my thought there is, are they willing to hold themselves accountable? This is what I thought when it came to mind is we can't have the guy who's holding everyone accountable, but not 
holding himself accountable because now what kind of standard are we setting? You know, now that I'm holding you accountable, but I'm above the fray, I'm not held to the same standard as you because I'm the leader. So I think those two things have to go hand in hand. I'd like to follow up just with the empathetic ears, your sub. How, as a coach, can we build an environment where a low minute guy can go and talk to a high minute guy, whether it's about his role, but like building an environment where that communication is encouraged or allowed and guys aren't so necessarily just like, well, I can't really go talk to that guy because he'll never relate. He's getting 30 minutes a game, you know? I think that starts with us. I think that's one of our biggest jobs is to be the standard bearer. You know, we're talking about accountability. Like if we're going to expect that our players would be able to have honest conversations with from the 10th guy to the first guy, then we need to have honest conversations with everybody on the roster, you know, and we need to model that behavior. I'm having those same honest conversations. That's where it starts. Like the coaches have to model that every day. And then you have to build the trust. Like we were talking about earlier, they have to know that in our building words matter and we're going to be honest with each other. We're going to communicate. If I have an issue, I'm going to come to you so we can resolve it. We need to be about conflict resolution. We need to be about eye contact. And it's not personal. It's just that this is how we're going to get better by embracing these conversations, even though they may be challenging or uncomfortable, regardless of where it's coming from. I have to be able to be a listener. I have to be empathetic for how someone else may feel. If the coach builds that in, then we all know what our goal is. And we know this is an essential aspect of how we're going to get there. Coach, I'd like to ask you about your sit, which is holding others accountable. And it's really hard to do peer to peer, right? And if there's been instances in your career where you've seen it done well, and what exists between those two individuals that makes it work so it doesn't blow up into something negative, but it can be positive? I think it's kind of involves the other thing. Like they have to be humble enough and open to listening. I think as people, they have to be about solutions. They have to want to find solutions. They have to be open to communicating with their teammates. We can try to build it, right? But if they're not open to that, then you know it's not going anywhere. When have I seen it done well? I think it's just when it's two individuals who are really about growth, who have a mindset like that they're not above anything, that they can be held to a standard. They can be held accountable. They're looking to be held accountable by anybody because they want to get better. You know, They want to be part of the team. And it is my opinion that even people who are acting out, they're just acting out because they haven't been held accountable. Everybody wants that. And I think the reason why I have it as sit is because, again, I think as coaches, that's our other thing. We need to hold everyone to the same standard. That's what it needs to be. And I think if we do that, then they can hold, hopefully, if we build that in, hold each other to the standard following that. But again, if we don't hold the first guy to the same standard as the 10th guy, and the reality is there are exceptions too, right? I mean, we're talking about the NBA. So exceptional players are exceptional rules. That's also the truth. But the level of clarity and honesty that needs to take place surrounding those conversations builds the trust. We don't do this a lot, but if I flip this question a little bit on start subset and we were talking locker room leaders, you know, kind of peer to peer, would your answer there be the same or different if the question was about coach to player and those three options as to what would be the most important for the coach to have the standards header, empathetic listener, accountability holder? Wow. Start subset on those three. I think standard setter, accountability, and empathetic listener. I think from coach to player, it has to be the standard there first. We have to model the behaviors every single day. If I don't know how to listen, I don't want to meet with them. They're going to see the behaviors that I'm acting out every day. They're going to see that I'm having conversations. They're going to see that I'm holding everyone accountable. And, and obviously, these things are all tied together. 
But the standard there, if you're not consistent, that's the thing. It's the cumulative weight of a day after day consistency that builds the discipline. So if you don't have the standard there, you have nothing because there's no discipline because they don't know what to expect from the coach. You can't expect them to play the same way every night, regardless of circumstance. So to me, the standard bearer is the starter from coach to player. I think I will sub accountability because there just have to be consequences for behaviors that we're not going to tolerate. If we're building a culture, culture, you know, buzzword, but it's the behaviors that you allow and the behaviors that you don't. So if I'm not holding anyone accountable for anything and they just do whatever they want, they don't sprint back in transition ever, then I have nothing. You know, I, I have to hold them to that standard every single time. Again, it's kind of tied together, but if I don't hold them accountable to getting back in transition every single time, then they won't get back in transition. You know, like they're not going to sprint. So if I say it every single time, I hold the guys accountable. I hold every single guy accountable to sprinting back, pointing, getting to the pain and matching up. Then they know that leaves the listening, which is really important. So now I feel bad that I said it because I've been talking about it the whole time. <laughs> but an empathetic listener is hugely important and it's a sit by default. Bringing it back to peer to peer now, you started the standard setter, which is probably a little bit more of the work ethic. Is he the hardest worker? In terms of the other two, like being a vocal leader, is that something that can be developed in players or is that more like the player just has it in him? I don't think it's something that you develop because I think a key thing that we haven't talked about that's important in all this for coaches too is authenticity. You know, you have to know who you are and you have to be yourself. You know, we talked about Steph before. This actual idea is something that I've been developing my own thoughts on is vocal versus non-vocal leaders. But again, Steph is not always a vocal leader, but he does model the behaviors on an everyday basis. And thus people look to him, you know, because he holds himself to a standard. He's about the work. He communicates the right way. He's respectful. He listens. Not that I've been around him, but it seems that way and what I've studied. So... No, I don't think so. I don't think you develop vocal leaders and I wouldn't want to. I think the most important thing we can do is help people understand themselves and then be themselves. So I think sometimes you may have people who are acting out as a vocal leader when they're not modeling the behaviors and we don't want that either. So it's not just about being vocal. I think a lot of the times, and this is coaches, this is players, just because someone's loud, just because someone's saying words doesn't mean that they're trustworthy, doesn't mean that they're dependable, doesn't mean that their actions are backing the words they're saying. I think Monty Williams had a great thing that came with the sons. Well done is better than well said. I think people say the words, not understanding that it's not about the words. You have to do the things that you're saying. And that's why it was so important to me that players can depend on me, that the words that are coming out of my mouth, I'm following through with. You know, because we don't want to have an organization or a building where words are shallow and people just say things and they don't back them up. You know, it has to be intention, it has to be meaningful, and that's where you build trust. To answer your question directly, it's no, I don't think you build vocal leaders and I wouldn't want them to. I encourage them to find themselves and figure out how they feel most comfortable leading and then lean into whatever they feel most comfortable doing because the best communicators, the best leaders are authentic to themselves and they are just comfortable in their own skin. Coach, well said. You are off the uh, start sub sit hot seat. Thanks for playing. Extended hot seat. Yeah, Extended yeah, yeah. We, bonus <laughs> round. <laughs> yeah, we kept it, kept it hotter a little longer for you today. Yeah. Um, right. So that was great. Thanks for going through yeah. all those. Coach, we got one more question for you to close the show before we do. This was really fun. Thank you for all your thoughts and your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. I've enjoyed it. Our last question for you. What's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? 
I'll say kind of part A, part B. I think there is a financial aspect. As soon as college ended, I flew myself out to Vegas. I'm obviously the NBA Summer League. I always knew what I wanted to do for me. There's never been a question. So there is a financial element of it where you have to make the money. I was driving Uber. Everyone's got their story of what they were doing for money. The financial investment, the time investment, those you have to do that. Year after year, flew myself out there time after time. And so the investment that I would say 1A is just showing up time after time, no matter how you feel, good or bad, no matter how someone makes you feel, because I think many people, I'm sure many of your listeners, you guys, maybe you were looked over by somebody in a higher position or weren't given much respect by somebody that they approached or tried to speak to. I think you just have to show up event after event, have people see your face, try to get to know people, try to have them get to know you. And it's not going to go well sometimes. So I think obviously there's a will, there's persistence, there's a determination that goes to that. But the investment is financial, is obviously how it gets started, but it's show up to as many things as possible. The best investment you can do is just be there, be in the fight, you know, be in the fight, be in the mix, give yourself a chance, even when it doesn't feel good to do so. Sometimes we're lucky enough the guest wants to stick around after and have some time to talk for you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And Coach Resner was nice enough to just chop it up with us afterwards. And man, fun just to get to know him. Really intelligent coach about the right stuff. It's just good to get to know him even more after the fact and just kind of even expanding on some of the ideas that we just talked about here, which was you know fun for us as well. So Pat, let's just dive into this right away. I think the one thing about a G League coach that's always particularly interesting when it comes to lineups is because of the nature of that job where you have players going back and forth and different nights which, which he alluded to a bunch they just have to think about this so much that they often and like coach Resner did they often have really good thoughts about how to balance lineups and how to be efficient with substitution patterns and all that i think it came across in the conversation and how well he spoke about these things. But yeah, to start it, I mean, I really like the four things he said he really thought about. And what to me, it wasn't anything to do with position. It's obviously the importance of skill and just blending the right, let's say, talent out there rather than I need a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, because you can still have lineup imbalance, you know, if you're just thinking positionally. Mm-hmm. I really just, you know, kind of big picture, just enjoyed the framework that he talks about and what they hold valuable and when kind of making these lineup decisions and as you start to begin to substitute you know keeping these four things the defensive versatility spacing playmaking rebounding in mind to just kind of guide you as the game unfolds and you know different situations are presented that as a staff you have to react to and in your substitution patterns can't remember when but you asked a good question you kind of connected this to the player development and how yeah okay, here's the four things that are really valuable. And then when you look at those four things and you start putting the lineups together and you have, say, a sub that's more of just a shooter, like then how do you think about the player development? Maybe give them more minutes because they can do more things, which I think was a good question by you that he connected to. And then I think he had an interesting comment too about sometimes though the specialists do help because they also really anchor in the lineups and how you play style play a little bit too that was good in there as well and i enjoyed too i think it also helped when you you know your major minute guys so like kind of then working around that like these guys are gonna have the majority of minutes so how it kind of shapes your rotation knowing who you got to keep on when he's on and then when he comes off you know the void you need to fill there so working around okay you have this framework you know who your major minute guys are and then just filling in the cracks from there for me at least 
shed light or, you know, it was very beneficial in just how you think about whether it's who you're going to start, who you're going to bring off the bench, but just kind of keeping these things in mind and not getting stuck with imbalanced lineups or lineups that are too heavily offensively or the other way defensively, you know, kind of like we talked about before when we were prepping that can really kind of swing a game, lead to runs against. And as we all know, those make the differences at times. Yeah, I liked his thoughts a lot too on, I think at one point kind of got on about rest and, you know, how you think about just keeping your best players fresh for down the stretch and how they look to do that kind of stuff. And that popped into my mind because there's another podcast we had, I think, I'm forgetting what year it was, maybe a year and a half ago with uh, Coach Martin Schiller. And we talked a little bit about substitutions with him. And one of the things he mentioned was like in EuroLeague or in that style of play, like they would try to go sub for sub with a matchup that worked. And so if a player got subbed off, they would take their best defender off because they needed to rest him at some point and they wanted to rest him when the other player was off the court, no matter who else was on. So just interesting ways to think about how you may or may not rest players as well. And I think we always talk about maybe topics or conversations we would have liked to have. I think that's something I wish I would have liked to have followed up more with, like just how then matchups also yeah. dictate your substitution and how you think about these lineups and you know and two on the other side of the coin when you're in a playoff setting and these matchups can hurt you but also not being too overreactive to what the other team is doing i think there is some advantage to how reactive versus proactive you are as well during the course of a game and i would have loved to explore that topic a little bit more with them i think it would have been interesting since you talked about maybe not a miss, but just something you wish you had more time with Coach Reznor too, I had written down, I just didn't get to asking about how some of the analytics play into these things. And yeah. I think that just, it's always interesting to ask as far as what they might look at in analytics to decide how these decisions are made. And specifically, like, is there a stat that's you know higher up in their decision-making than others, like adjusted plus minus or the PPP of, there's so many good stats out that, you know, you can get good data now. And like, I didn't get a chance to ask him on that. So that's something I would have asked him personally. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. When you asked about the practice setting and how they kind of explore these lineups. And as we have found out in the G League, there's just not that much practice time. And so he alluded to just other stuff. And that also popped in my mind, like what kind of stats then maybe they're looking at to back some of their decisions. That's a real thing I think about a lot is when you have all these combinations of players let's say your top nine to 10, the balance and practice of like when you go five on five or when you do all this stuff, like wanting your top group to get used to playing with each other, but then also you want to get your top four with your seventh man in there when you need, you know, there's only so many hours in practice to fiddle with these combinations and to get them quality reps. And that's, you know, something just, we always talk about too, of just getting combinations, quality reps. So when they get in the game, it's not the first time this combination of players has played meaningful minutes together. I think you bring up a good point and it's kind of, I think what was so, what we look forward to this conversation, just because I think there are moments in a game or throughout a season that do happen where you get lineups where, yeah, these three guys, these combination guys have never played with each other. Or, you know, what I also enjoy tight, like unbalanced lineups. All of a sudden it's like, I mean, how are we going to score with this lineup or how are we going to get stops? And so it's just fun to get this, like I keep referring to this framework and how they work on it, how they develop these lineups is what I think the core of what we wanted to kind of get at with this conversation start sub sit i get a chance to you know get to some dhos again that which is. <laughs> is always fun for me you know pat those of you know i i have a just a huge huge video library of 
DHOs that I just compile yeah. daily, weekly that I don't know if we'll ever do anything with. But Not now at least. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I got a chance to go to the DHOs. And I think with this question, we talked before you and I about like, just there are some really interesting dribble handoff situations that we've seen more and more from teams. And one of them was what was his start, the corner step up. Mm seen a lot more of those and honestly what i really liked too was just we got in a little conversation about the difference between a gut dho and a spinulus yeah. dho and like the slight difference of the angle which was cool just the vocab on that i'll just kick it back to you on any takeaways from that first dho conversation you kind of hit on it a little bit or alluded to it but i really enjoyed just the changing the angle just the importance of an angle which we've talked a lot about and of course forcing overs but I mean, I think which is why with these flip screens, these corner step ups, it's such an attacking angle. And then what he talked to, too, this how flipping it. And if you can develop that naturally, have it be more unpredictable. And when you change the angles and just the stress it puts on the defense. So I just enjoyed that whole conversation. I didn't know that Antoni was the first one to do the hook or flip. So it's good to know. Yeah, but <laughs> we were right about the heat. I know that much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With the corner stuff. But you know, what I liked about this conversation is just like when you're thinking about things that are hard to guard, you know, that corner step up is like he talked about. It's the defender, the actions behind you. So it's like super difficult to have any sort of pressure. Miami does this so good with Duncan Robinson. And then like Duncan Robinson is so good at if he's not shooting it, he puts that little pocket pass to the roller and then they play on the backside, the hook DHO, like in the gut, like they're just interesting things for the defender where you're chasing and anytime you get that defender chasing at an odd angle then with some patience and with some reps in these dhos you can really create a nice advantage off of what flows from it yeah i think it was fun to just pick his brain on what he sees and and why these things are hard to guard in general and then let's flip over to the locker room stuff which was another really great conversation with him and i'll let you take it there as far as your takeaways i enjoyed the conversation we kind of ended with in terms of developing vocal leaders, but I'll start with, and I think when we put this question together, I think we wanted to have like one where it was, you know, in the standard setter where it wasn't, yeah, a vocal leader. So like, obviously I'm seeing where his answer would take him, you know, but making kind of clear delineage, like we gave two that were the vocal leadership aspect and one that was the work ethic gonna, gonna do the work, put in the time. And so it, it was fun to hear his answer and what he started and what you know, he valued and go through that. But ultimately, I just like the conversation we settled on at the end with you probably can't really develop it. And he doesn't like trying to force guys into these situations because I agree. I think, you know, we always talk about it. If you're not authentic as a coach or if you're trying to force local leaders like guys see through that right away. I really like the quote that he Monty Williams, where he said, well done is better than well said. I thought that was a really cool quote that just kind of summed up, I think, that whole conversation and just, you know, the value of communication and versus behavior model. For sure. We've been fortunate to have a lot of fun conversations about leadership development with different coaches. I wrote down, it was just reminding me of two. One of them was a more recent one with Julie Folks, Transylvania women's basketball, and how she helps develop her leaders when they come in and the expectations of a freshman to a sophomore, junior, senior. And so much of it is about who they are and how their personality can impact the team. And then a couple of years ago, Brady Bergeson, we had on yeah. from Regis, Division Two from Regis, and he talked about their leadership groups that he puts together and helping those leaders develop. 
And I think what sticks out to all three of those conversations to me is that the value of helping players understand just who they are and that there's so many different ways to lead. And if you're not someone that's able to get in front of a group and talk, and I think that's hard for everyone to do. I think the number one fear of people in general is public speaking. It's just hard for anyone. But I think that the ability to develop who you are and you know, settle into whatever it is that you do well, just be great at that and that that has value within a group and that, yeah, would you like your best players to also be all three of these things, the the standard setter, the accountability holder, empathetic listener? Yeah, that would be great. But really just being able to lean into what you do best can have really good benefits. And honestly, I think too, like this is just sometimes a personal feeling when you're asking someone who you want to be a leader to do something that they're not comfortable with, it almost can make them worse (laughs) as a leader because now they're anxious about it or not comfortable or doing something outside of what they do best. And though you want them to grow, it can also kind of cause friction between you and the person you're trying to have lead. And so I think that like these kind of conversations can help with a more genuine relationship between player coach so that you can hold them accountable as a coach to something that you know is in their skill set and you know they can do well at and you're not asking them to do something that they feel uncomfortable doing, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think too, it also can affect, if you're trying to force a guy to be a vocal leader, it can affect his relationship peer to peer in the same way, you know, that trust is broken in the same way, you know, Coach Reznor alluded to when he says, you know, hey, at the 10 minute mark, you're going to get in and then he doesn't. And so the next time you say it, it's losing meaning. So the same way, if you try to force this leader to speak up, guys see through it, it's not going to be authentic. And we go back to the folks conversation. They probably also don't have a good understanding of tone and how they deliver the message. So, you know, usually you're not telling peer to peer. It's, you know, maybe it's sometimes got to be the truth. Let's like it's got to be hard news. And if he doesn't deliver that in such a proper tone, it can really then break the trust between him and his teammate. Yeah, I think you and I have been in plenty of locker rooms, both as players and coaches, where someone tries to be vocal and it's just not received super well for a variety of reasons. At times it's either like way too harsh or it's almost comical because it's like, this is so far out of this guy's personality. I think too, we don't want to be too harsh. I mean, you also have to credit the player for trying, you know, I mean, hundred percent that has to be recognized and applauded as well, but it is a delicate dance. Let's say that you got to be mindful of when trying to put them in situations that it's not authentic or true to them. Yeah. And sometimes too, if a player isn't vocal and then when they are, that can have a powerful effect too, where it's like, okay, this person never really speaks up. And now all of a sudden they're saying something and rather than the the guy or gal is just always talking. I mean, (laughs) we have plenty of those we've played with or no, it's just like they never stop talking. So yeah. But when someone else pipes up, it can have an impact too. So yeah. Well, Coach Reznor was equally fun as he was knowledgeable. And so that was a pleasure to talk to him. And Pat, there's nothing else. We'll call this a day. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Who do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.